The reality is that the church is where the gospel is preached, and God is sovereign over those who are his flock, or those who are, know they're his flock now, or those who don't yet know they're part of his flock. He's sovereign. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here once again with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you gentlemen today? Very good. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. You guys do Halloween in any form, or are you Harvest Festival only? <laughs> We do Halloween. I don't like it. It's my worst. It's my least favorite holiday. Yeah, we. Because, well, we. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, I was just saying, like this. Ever since the kids have been little, I mean, just all day. Well, now they're they're better. When they were little, spending all day helping them get into their costumes, figuring out their costumes. Well, they do like Jane awful. Austen characters, right? Like legit, yeah, literary yeah. costumes, hoops, which nobody knows what they are, right? So, yeah. so they and they're always disappointed. <laughs> Boy, and it's not like your it's like how your family dresses year round, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, but we do it also. We well, we we have our kids are young still, so it's like it's it's you know still really cute um and fun and games i mean i do think i i have growing antipathy towards the um holiday not necessarily from a theological perspective but just from a sociological perspective mm-hmm. i mean i'm i am i don't know i go back and forth in the two camps you know you have like the jim jordan camp or james jordan camp that says you know it's a mockery of death and so you yeah. should you know and then the other one that says you know you're you're still participating in the you know the satanic you know ritual <laughs> so you should flee from it so i um, you know, I don't I do think that what it has become in like with adults is sort of pathetic, really, for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, the all the the excuses and the and the the sexy costume, you know, and it just puts sexy in front of anything. And then it's just an excuse to go to some party and, you know, be debaucherous. You know, it's like it's sort of embarrassing, really. So um, but I mean, we're still we're we're making a trunk and we're going to be Peter Pan. So I'm going to be Mr. Darling. Complete with wig and mustache. I'll send you a picture. That's right. And, Are you um, going to also be Captain Hook? Because you know that that's the parallel that J.M. Perry's trying to draw. No, no, uh, John, young John's maybe the <laughs> Captain Hook, and then we've got Peter Pan, and we got the little boy nice. with the nightshirt, Davis. We got the whole get up. We got Shelby, our nanny's going to be Tiger Lily. So we got the whole the yeah. whole Disney um, Peter Pan taken care of. Um, so yeah, I will say that as far as Halloween goes, I'm appreciative for the uh, spirit Halloween meme Store. format, which is oh, yeah, really, yeah. really golden. We need to make one up for that. We need to um, maybe the topic of this conversation today will lend itself to a, a <laughs> meme like that. An so ACNA that... priest being being a coward and pizza hut hat or something (laughs) (laughs) no it would be retake the main line me you know like it would be either so be your your costume for retaking the main line would have to be like you know ivy style adjacent um clothing tweed jacket (laughs) um you know copy of new york times under arm um you know well let's get to that conversation um we got a bunch of emails over the last week from our 
Well, I suppose the plural form of listener is listeners. We got a bunch of emails all sending us the same thing, a podcast episode. I think Aaron. it was all of them, though. I think all, all of the of listeners. Them, every single yeah. one. Um, <laughs> and an episode from Aaron Wren's The Aaron Wren Show, an episode in which he interviews someone who goes by the name Redeemed Zoomer, who apparently has a YouTube channel on which he talks theology while playing Minecraft, which it must be said is the zoomiest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> So Ren on this episode is interviewing Redeemed Zoomer, a member of Generation Z, about his Reconquista movement, a strategy to recover the mainline churches for orthodoxy. Basically, the strategy is not to leave, not to go to denominations like the PCA, the Global Methodist Church, or the ACNA, but to stay in denominations like PCUSA, UMC, and the Episcopal Church. After all, the argument is, they have the beautiful buildings in the good locations with the cultural capital of which these breakaway denominations can only dream. For instance, he dismisses the ACNA as sad and cowardly, a bunch of churches that have beautiful Gothic cathedrals on their websites, but meet in old pizza huts. <laughs> I would dream of a pizza hut. <laughs> Give me a pizza hut. I will slit a throat for a pizza hut. <laughs> Luxury. <laughs> Obviously, will get that reference. <laughs> as ACNA clergymen, we have skin in this game, and there's a lot we're going to disagree with Reform Zoomer about. But to start off, did he make any good points at all? Anything for us worth reflecting on? I mean, I, lo- I love the idea of subverting main lines which is what he's basically arguing we should do he you know i listened to a couple of of other podcasts that he was on and he's he's he says you know the main thing you want to do is not go into a into a mainline congregation that's already apostate and and try and fix it because you probably can't but go find those churches that are basically orthodox within these denominations and and attend them you know support them keep them from being subverted and then and then play the long game because ultimately the the main lines that are apostate are going to die out. Liberal churches die out because they're like you know, parasites. They feed they they feed off living bodies, but once you know, once there's nothing left to feed off of, they just die. And so, what's going to happen when when the uh, when the liberal churches die is you still have the, the remaining husk of the orthodox churches, and that's when you can retake all the buildings. That's the basic plan, and it's you know it's 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 fascinating plan, and I think it's a it could probably work in certain polities. I don't think it has much of a chance in the Episcopal Church, just because of the way the government governance works. And I and, I, and this, this is, I mean, we'll talk about his flaws later. But I think it's one of the major flaws of the, of his strategy. I think is it it he's not really taking into account the uniqueness of the various denominations. You know, that on, on just a practical level, there's some theological issues I have. I, theological things I have issues with him too. But but overall, I mean, I think it's I mean, it's a really it is a brave, bold, adventurous idea that where I. He's only 20 years old. Right, 20 years old, I think I would think, yes, I can be an actual conquistador, reconquistador, but I can go and I can go to my neighborhood Episcopal church and and start uh, supporting it there and do and do, play my part. Yeah, well, I was that 20. I was that 20 year old. I mean, I well, I was 21. But um, when I was introduced to the challenge set before me at the time, you know, that was essentially the argument. Like, don't give up the Episcopal church. Like, come help us, you know, build from within. Um, go to this seminary, work in these dioceses, and you know, over time, it's going to um, we're going to win out. I mean, that was that was the that was the very inspiring to me, and so I, I share with you an, a, a respect for that 
for what I will ultimately call now a sentiment, uh, because I think that's a little bit, there's a little bit of sort of sentimental rose-colored glasses being being utilized <laughs> there. But I do appreciate the desire. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm expecting these churches to be up for sale to whoever, to the highest bidder for whatever denomination, you know, particularly in polities where they're easily sold, like the PCUSA, or at least, or well, I don't know how easy it is, but like, to the extent that there's a financial crisis coming demographically, you know, pushing this um, need for liquidation of these beautiful old churches. Well, you know, I'm expecting at least to be in the possible possible hope of helping someone buy one somewhere, you know, if not a couple. I mean, that's so I don't disagree with them in that. I think a lot of the tactics that he's advocating are are good. You know, I mean, get into a church, support the, the conservative minister, um, you know, and so on and so forth. I think that one of the challenges that he, um, you know, that we've talked about before that we can talk about is the fact that these ministers are the ones who are, are more increasingly compromised. The laity is one thing, but particularly in our polity, you know, to submit to the authority of a bishop and to take these vows and to then work within a sort of a diocesan structure, if not a provincial structure, as we've talked about before, is can't help but weaken your soul. I mean, at least in ours, you know, we, we aren't Baptists. You know, I, I think if you're on a progressive Baptist denomination, um, but you have your polity that's, you know, local church is the sort of the end all be all, well, then yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, go find a Baptist church that's beleaguered somewhere like in Portland or whatever. And if it's got a halfway conservative minister, you know, get all your friends to move there and and build it up from the inside out, you know. But we're talking about something entirely different when we come to at least our polity. I'm not an, an expert in the Presbyterian polity, but, but we can talk. But, you know, I think that's one of the I know we're going to get to the weaknesses too, but that's one of the challenges that I would see with this that we've actually lived through. I mean, he was describing a lot of the the sort of walk uh, that we have taken, um, and it was hard not to resonate with some of it, frankly. But it also, you know, I felt a little bit like the old man, you know, get off my lawn, kid, uh, because I wanted to say, you know, we tried this mm -hmm. and we didn't fail. And you know, you're characterizing it as as you know, cowardice or 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 I don't know how he put it, um, retreating. Uh, retreating but you know we have again we've talked about it at length uh it's anything but it was actually more like a repentance and renewal right well, yeah no I, I agree with that i think i think i want to get into that later because i thought i thought i think that his his message his his mission could be much better heard much more much more heard more friendly in a friend more friendly way and supported by those of us who have left if he weren't always calling us cowards. That's a conversational impediment right there. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a young man thing. I don't know. But also on the plus side is I think he has named something that has been a, a kind of a pet peeve of mine for a long time. And our, our colleague, our former colleague at Sarah, at Stanford, Sarah High, was, was big into this. Um, and that is that in, in congregations, conservatives tend to be apolitical. Like they'll, they'll, they, they, they don't, the really strongly Christian people tend not to want to be on vestry, tend not want not to want to be in the provincial council. To, they don't want to go to the you know, all the political stuff. They want to be spiritual. They want to think of the Bible. They want to do, you know. So what happens, though, is leftists are always political. They're always thinking politically. And so they're going to be the ones to get on the vestry. They're going to be the ones pushing to get on the, on the provincial council delegate group. They're going to be the ones who are on the front lines of the, the politics, and they're they're the ones who are going to begin subverting institutions. And so uh, that's what happened in the Episcopal Church. A lot of people, a lot of Episcopalians, good-hearted people, conservative people, just didn't see, didn't understand how politics work. 
and so we lost yeah. the fight on, on that level. Um, and so in the ACNA, this is where we this is where I hope we don't replicate that because we've got to be careful who we in our in our separate diocese. We've got to be careful who who we allow to be our representatives to the provincial provincial council, uh, who we allow in our diocesan committees and and commissions and and as rectors, we're going to be very careful about who. Yeah, we put up ordination. Yeah, ordination on vestry, all of that. I mean, that really sure. matters. Even in a, even in a, in a denomination like ours, which is purportedly sealed off from that kind of heresy, no, they, 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 these leftists know how to subvert an organization. Well, the book hasn't been written, as far as I know, but it could be about Louis Crew and his life. You know that I mean, he he had <laughs> you know a straightforward plan you know in the, in the mid 70s to take over the episcopal church and infiltrate it with progressives so that ultimately what happened in 2003 would be i mean he was a complete victory and it was and it was a ground yeah. game you know i mean they started with like local vestries and small churches and then ran for diocesan treasurer or something you know and then ran for you know then got on the provincial you know and, and so on and so forth and and it began in newark i think it was newark yeah. where louis crew was and I it spread like a cancer and so I think you're exactly right, Matt. I think, you know, one of the problems, and we've seen this time and time again, is that, you know, heartfelt, um, tender, tender-hearted sort of evangelical Christians know their sin and they are, they know the the commands of Jesus to love your enemies and things. And so they're, as a result, often very sweetly uh, manipulated by accuse, accusations of being mean or unkind or unchristian, you know? And so some of these political moves, like for instance, you know, exercising church discipline, if you have canons that have, you know, if you have rules in your church about certain, um, you know, lifestyles or behaviors to be on vestry or to be in volunteer things or, or even canonical, I mean, at diocesan level, you know, more often than not, people be reticent to even point those out, if not enforce them, because they don't want to be perceived as as unkind, unchristian, or uncaring. And you know, again, I don't want to be unkind, unchristian, or uncaring either. But part of the reticence to get into politics um, is that that often a lot of the political maneuver maneuvering and machinations are, at least from the perception of them, unkind, unchristian, and uncaring, simply because they're. Well, they're they're part of the political process. And so I think that's where, you know, uh, conspiring with groups of people to get so and so elected instead of that person, you know, talking to the bishop about bringing Title four uh, clergy violations over here because of what this person did and that. I mean, these are seen as very unkind. And again, I don't want to be uh, live in a Stasi state where I'm afraid of of everyone listening and recording and, and judging. But at the same time, I think we have. um we have a base level of conviction that we can work from now that I hope um, will keep us from drifting into that sort of progressive malaise that we, uh, we've already lived through. The thing that I thought was an accurate diagnosis from him, which I think can then lead us into some of our critiques, is that he pointed out something that I've experienced here in my church in Louisville as close as we are to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he said that biblically Orthodox people, and especially young men, are being drawn to Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy because Protestantism doesn't appear to them to have a tradition, i.e. we're meeting in an old pizza hut, or in my case, a school cafeteria. I've experienced that as true. There's a certain percentage of people who stop off at my ACNA church on their way either to you know, Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy, because what they want or what they think they want isn't exactly what we're offering. 
But his solution seems to be the redeemed Zoomer's solution seems to be you need to get that beautiful little church downtown and then they'll come to you because you have now what they want. And it seems to me that we need to train people that that's not actually what they need. They need the proclamation of the gospel. The, the kind of history we certainly do have as a church is more important than the actual he seems really hung up on actual buildings and actual neighborhoods. I mean, he's he's right. Uh, it's refreshing to hear someone with um, reformed evangelical convictions like him not think that place and institution and building are irrelevant. I mean, right. it, 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 that's that's a I, I like I like that. He's right about that. But I I also think he's a little bit. I don't think he takes into account that the power of the gospel in a non-beautiful space. <laughs> the reality is that the church is where the gospel is preached. And God is sovereign over those who, his flock, those who are, know they're his flock now, or those who don't yet know they're part of his flock. He's sovereign. So, so he uses the gospel preached to bring people to, into the, the visible church. And I guess what, I, what I'm reacting against here is a lot of that argumentation sounds similar to the argumentation for, well, we really need a church that looks like the, the concert hall, that we need to get the, the, the fog machines and the lights and the electric guitars and the drums and, the, and look like as much like the, what people want as we possibly can, and then they'll come to our churches. It's not the uh, same aesthetic, it, but it is an aesthetic. It's, it's, it's exactly. He's, it's, a, it's the same argument, just a different aesthetic. So I, I and I've always thought that argument was guts the gospel. It, it guts the what the real power, what draws people to to Christ. Um, and, and what I think is going on in him, I'm, maybe I'm mistaken too, but uh, it sounds like he's driven a lot more like uh, with the desire to to retake the, the heights of the culture than he is. I, and I don't. I, this sounds bad. I don't mean it how this comes out. But it sounds like it's more of a political project for for cultural conservatism on his part than it is for evangelism and reaching the lost. Like if we can get if we get these big old churches and these historic town centers, then we can have the influence in the culture and we can begin to win uh, win back our nation. Aaron Wren said that almost explicitly. He's like that. Those are the churches that like the mayor and the senators still go to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I, and I'm I'm not I'm not saying we don't. I don't want to be agnostic and say we do, that those things aren't those things aren't important. But I, I I don't think that bending over backwards to gain cultural influence is what the church should be about. I think that that's something that we can gain over time if God is gracious to us. But I don't think that should be the primary aim of the church. I listen to Aaron Wren a lot, just, you know, full disclosure. And I agree largely with a lot of his says, and I really appreciate his newsletter uh, that he's put out for years now. Um, that being said, he he does, Aaron talks often about the importance of cultural institutions and, you know, the elite um, and sort of their responsibilities, what we used to, you know, like the noblesse oblige idea, you know, the, and, you know, of course we have, sociologists like Philip Lash, you know, with the revolt of the elites, um, writing very clearly that the old mainline 
um, of whatever denomination, responsibility of the cultural elites, either financially or sociologically, um, they have they have jettisoned that responsibility. You know, they don't. We don't have J.P. Morgan writing personal checks to keep the stock market from bouncing, from from, from crashing. You know, things like this, or 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 we we have fewer of the sense of responsibility for the for the ultra rich to you know start libraries or or underwrite you know opera houses or things and so you know there is a there is a sense of loss that the episcopal church represents in particular in all of these great cities that there was a time when to be born into a certain, um, you know, with the, you know, like the Boston Brahmins, you know, the, 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 to be born into a certain uh, group of elite families required participation in the local church. And then by extension, through your societal engagement, a lot of philanthropic giving and, you know, and there was a, there was a weight to that, that we are, we are losing. And so I sense in his yearning, his earnestness, a desire to to see some of that be taken back within the mainline church. And again, I, I, I commend that desire. But I think the problem is that, you know, if you have if you spent any time in these these institutions, not the least of which the Episcopal Church, but just by but but even broader, you know, the old mainline institutions like um, the boarding schools, you know, like the the old Episcopal church boarding schools up and down the Northeast, or some of these old uh, mainline clubs, or some of these old, um, like the places where these mainline people congregated, you'll see that sort of the religious, you know, aspect of them is almost entirely gone. You know, I mean, I, I did, I remember doing a, a wedding for someone who went to Kent, uh, where they had to go to chapel, Episcopal chapel, prayer book worship four days a week. And he told me sort of without any guile that he um hadn't been to a, a service since he stepped foot out of boarding school and he was a young man that was like in his mid-20s getting married and i said well you know they seem to do a pretty good job of inoculating you to anything actually christian in some of these institutions and so i think it, what i was wrestling with the whole time is that i listened to myself as a not a young man, even a middle-aged man speaking and making those arguments to defend my own participation in the Episcopal Church for a decade or 12 years, really. I mean, and it was it was a painful uh, realization that, you know, I finally uh, had to lay it down. And I did, would not, again, would not consider that cowardice in any way. Of course, you know, I guess, I guess from his perspective, he can have his opinion on the situation. But I do think that that I agree with you, Matt, that there's a there's an appeal to the culture, uh, but the culture itself, I mean, look at the Church of England. I mean, like the, the you can't get more beautiful than that than Lambeth, you know, the last Lambeth. I mean, I remember watching that um, at six o'clock in the morning and it was like, you cannot get more beautiful than what is taking place right now. And yet this is cold and empty. And I don't know what to do with that other than to stand outside and and replant and and renew um, something something altogether different. You guys think that the activity of the apostles in Acts and the early church has any story to tell about this? I'm wondering about the reconquista movement of infiltrating the synagogues and staying faithful to Jesus, but trying to influence those around you. It seems to me that the early church was a distinctly separate thing in the catacombs and in homes with secret signs and symbols and not sort of specifically not trying to recapture the culture, but creating something in its place. Yeah, I mean, Paul, that was Paul's strategy. He would, he would go to a city and he would, uh, on the Sabbath, he would go into the synagogue and he would preach the gospel. And if the synagogue as a whole, I guess, would, would be willing to hear and believe, then that would become a church, I guess. 
but generally what would happen is is a core would believe and the rest would not and ultimately he'd be beaten and kicked out and he had to start a church next door right <laughs> he just, yeah. just planted plant a church so so ultimately what happened was the church became a separate entity from the synagogue and the synagogue had buildings the synagogue had all the institutional power uh, i guess that much more than the church did or the um, temple of but, artemis or whatever you know <laughs> right 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 so so there so and yet and yet paul and the other apostles trusted that um because we have a king who's seated in heaven and who is sovereign over the affairs of of men that uh that we don't if you if you don't have the cultural cachet of institutional power you all you have the spiritual power of christ in the gospel which is greater much much greater again i hear the i hear the cultural argument I think there's several biblical problems with with his strategy, especially with regards to the Episcopal Church. I think it works a lot better for lay people. I think uh, JD was hinting at this earlier than it does for clergy in the in the in the Episcopal Church, because as a clergy person, I'm saying person uh, intentionally because the Episcopal Church uh, it doesn't matter what sex you are, but um, and, and some or if you even have one. Right, right, right. But you have to, you have to treat abject heretics, I mean, the, the utter heretics and, and apostates, as if they're Christians. You have to greet them with Christian greetings and pretend as if they are fellow servants of Jesus, just like you. And that's a direct violation of Second John, where we're not supposed to give any greeting at all to, to heretics, because if you do that, you, you communicate that that person's a legitimate minister of the gospel. So, so I don't see how an ordained Episcopal priest who's thoroughly Orthodox can do the Reconquista thing in the Episcopal Church, even if he has an Orthodox bishop, because he's still got to interact with the rest of the church as if it's part, if it's as if it's a legitimate, legitimate church. No way a bishop in the Episcopal Church can do that now, because, as we said, the last general convention made it impossible for a bishop to refuse to facilitate. A gay wedding, right? So, so, so not only does it, does an Episcopal bishop have to interact with his fellow bishops, her fellow bishops, whatever, as if they're Orthodox, he also has to, which is a violation of Second John. He also has to facilitate a blasphemy of marriage, using his own authority to do it. So you can't, you you can't do that. You can't be a Christian bishop in the Episcopal Church. You you. You necessarily compromise yourself. Um, I think you necessarily compromise yourself as um, as a, as a priest as well. I don't. I think that the, the strategy that the communion partners have taken has led them. The communion partner bishops have ultimately led them to to turn their backs even on a guy like Bishop Love, who refused to facilitate these marriages, and they 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 made their very weak statements in support of him. But that's all. You know, they're still in the Episcopal Church. They're still obligated by by the most recent general convention to facilitate these gay marriages. So I, I just, I just think it's a, it's a, it, it does not work for Christians who want to obey the scriptures, Christian clergy who want to obey the scriptures to be reconquistadors in, in the Episcopal church. We've talked about this a lot, but, but, but I, I do sympathize and we have a lot of, we all have a lot of colleagues and friends who are, who are still in the Episcopal Church, and um, you know, it gets harder. It, it you know, obviously, the, the longer you walk apart, the farther away you get. 
but one of the difficulties that I think that they're all running into is that you you can't, no matter what your personal convictions are, and even to the extent that you can maintain order and orthodoxy within the confines of your own church, it's impossible for the implication not to be that this is a secondary issue when you are yoked with actively practicing "Quote unquote married clergy, much less lay people um, that are that are canonically resident either within your own diocese, but certainly within the province, and even at the level of bishop." And you know, I told myself that well, it wasn't affecting me. You know, I still had this control, and to a certain extent, we we did exercise that. I mean, we were thankful we had very clear marriage policies, and we had, but it just um, over time particularly when I started having children, I realized that this is impossible. It's an, and and again, maybe someone can have yet to be convinced. Otherwise I certainly wasn't convinced. I put my own livelihood and my own, you know, sort of career path. It was just jumped into an entirely different one um, as, as a result of this conviction change. And I woke up one day and realized that this could never, this would never happen, that there would be a day when my daughter, who's now reading voraciously, you know, would sit down and be like, I don't understand, daddy, like what, how, how do these two things fit? And, you know, I realized that, that however high the walls were outside of uh, my church, you know, with respect to the Episcopal culture that then particularly as the culture itself became much more just antagonistic towards traditional Christianity, that the the permeable membrane between whatever wall I had and the outside culture was just, it was going to be um, just um, more and more uh, fluid. And so, you know, there are a lot of problems, a lot of challenges that ACNA has, you know, I think the aesthetic, I think the, I think a lot of the critiques he had on some of his experience in ACNA churches were apt, you know, I think some of the ones that are trying to have a non-denom church with communion every Sunday, you know, or, or some of the, we've talked about the people that have come in from more like progressive evangelicals who think we're like some sort of, you know, kinder, gentler sort of iteration of of their baptist upbringing or whatever you know these are all problems i think a certain a certain unseriousness with some of the acna uh church clergy and uh you know i think is is off-putting so so i I agree with some of the challenges but i but the the challenges are are part of a a newly rooted firmly founded christian body which um or, or entity which, you know, I will take all those challenges. Well, we have taken all those challenges in exchange for um, just the the soul sort of weakening, smiley, false smile at these, you know, all these dioceses and conventions and sort of these provincial meetings when you have to uh, realize that you are participating in the perpetuation of a of a quote unquote Christian church that is undermining and representing um, heretical viewpoints um, in almost across the board. And that's just that's that's just not something that um, well, that's 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 the difficulty that I think I certainly experienced personally. And I can imagine, you know, people have but people who are in there, you know, people who are in the communion partner bishops and things have have um, made their peace with it, obviously, they made their peace. And so, you know, I don't really worry about it that much anymore until we listen to platformed uh, podcasters who are calling ACNA people cowards. <laughs> and you're like, well, maybe we should maybe we should just clarify uh, how we're understanding this, because it certainly isn't a retreat from the main line. If anything, we're trying to have can keep Anglicanism alive 
um, so that when these vacancies come through, they're not just sold to, which is fine if they're sold to a, a Hispanic Pentecostal church, like all over uh, New Jersey, all the old mainline churches, but, um, but we'll also take a couple along the way, you know, <laughs> so tough to outbid those developers though. Nah, so well, you were in Jersey city, a lot Nick, of money in pubs. Remember when, um, Bishop Spong took over diocese in Newark, what Jersey city has something like 22 churches. I mean, when yep. you served there, what it was one three. and a half, three. three. But the other beautiful churches were taken over by church plants and things, hmm. or some of them were. That was exciting to see. So praise God. I think one of the things that, he, he, that the redeemed Zoomer said in his podcast, Ben Wren, is that when we say things like the Episcopal Church is apostate, that we're, we're violating the commandment against bearing Yeah, slander. Yeah, it's slander, right? So so because and the reason for that, he said, was because there are faithful congregations within the Episcopal Church. Well, we don't deny that. I don't deny that there Not are at all. congregations or priests in the Episcopal Church. But it's fully legitimate to call the Episcopal Church apostate because its official stances take it outside the Christian Church. The official body has taken positions on sexuality that remove it from the Christian faith. So it is, as, as a denomination, it's apostate. Within the denomination, sure, there are faithful people, outposts of orthodoxy, but but we can still say, yep, the Episcopal Church is apostate. I'm sh- pretty sure for the same reason you can say the PCS USA. Uh, I, I know you can call the Methodist United Methodist Church apostate. You can call the LCMS uh, apostate. So so we're no LC you, ELCA, not LCMS. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're yeah, going to get sorry, some emails. One. Emails. Oh, yeah, yeah, wrong one. <laughs> my, my LCMS friends I, are emailing type people, yeah. so look out. <laughs> <laughs> wrong one, ELCA. Sorry about that. Um, but but yeah, the um. There, there is, is there. I'm there, just like we can say, no doubt, there are real Christians in, in the choose your cult, but they, but that doesn't change the fact that the cult's right. a cult, and that there are yeah. apostate people in ACNA. It's a That's false right. equivalency right. to say that the ACNA has an apostate, and so does the Episcopal Church. Therefore, sort of all churches are equal. Well, That's not true. It's the old chestnut of, you know, we, the people that that started the ACNA or are part of the ACNA, you know, are just in search of purity. You know, we're just sort of the the old nasty Puritans, the Donatists, you know, throw that in your face all the time. And I always remind people that during the Donatist controversy, you know, the Donatists who were heretical still had to repent and be restored. You know, it wasn't like they were just like, well, no big deal that you were a apostate during the persecutions. You know, they just said that you can come back in the church, you know, but you did didn't come back in the church as an apostate. You came back into the church as a forgiven Christian. You know, there's a big difference right, than just right. saying, and you know, this is exactly what we're seeing in the Church of England right now, which I had sent y'all that article. If anyone listens to Irreverend, they have an uh, interview with um, the Orthodox ordinance are protesting the official change in the theology of the Church of England, because up until now, and I represent this remark also, as I spent the first years, six years of my life in the Church of England, very comforted that despite the fact that there were obvious heretical priests walking around and that there was a lot of even dioceses that were flaunting the uh, prohibition against same-sex union or at least same-sex you know, cohabitation, um, nevertheless, the official teaching was that marriage was between a man and a woman. And so I said, well, you know, I'm on the side of Orthodox historic Christianity here, and the church has not officially made any pronouncements otherwise. And so, you know, I felt as a measure of, of safety and solidity there, even though, you know, I wasn't unaware of the fact that in these various places, I mean, there was some, you know, kind of, um, well, to use Monty Python, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, going on. But I think that's, that's exactly right, Matt, is that 
you know, we we had this conversation even in this diocese here because the question was, you know, at what point could you have been a faithful conquistador getting ordained in the Episcopal Church, you know, and it was like, even after 2003, I mean, I got ordained 2007, you know, so I mean, I obviously made some, I had, I had come in, of course, ACNA hadn't been officially started by then. But nevertheless, you know, as it got progressively more heretical, you know, then it was 2012, I think it was that you ordination didn't take into account uh, gender identity or, or, you know, sexual identity or something like you could have a non-binary person, they wouldn't have used that language then. And then, of course, when 2015 came, and all of the bishops immediately, or many, jumped on not just blessing same-sex unions, but actually changing the the marriage right. You know, at a certain point, it became unconscionable to even consider ordination in the Episcopal Church. Now, I feel for the people that were ordained back in, you know, 1995 or whatever, and they were signed up for a fight, but that was then and this is now, you know. And so I look at, I do under, I do appreciate the fact that he's in the Diocese of Dallas, I think, you know, which is, which is still fighting the fight. And there are some beautiful probably Anglo Catholic churches down there. There is a there is a real attention to the liturgical tradition and history. And so I can, you know, you can forgive him to be a little bit um sentimental uh if you are in the one of the better exponents of Orthodox Episcopalianism within the Episcopal Church. But I think he needs to spend some time up in where Nick was up in mm-hmm. Jersey City for a little <laughs> while and then maybe hang out with the radical fairies. Yeah, I mean that was uh, that was eye opening for me. Goodness, goodness gracious! Um, so the, the last thing we should probably address is is the is the charge of cowardice on his part, which I thought, I mean, this is this is something I think only a twenty year old could do could, could, could say who doesn't have any experience or any understanding of what was going on, at least in the Episcopal Church, and I'm sure similar stories could be told about all the other denominations that have gone through a split like ours, but. Um, I know lots of guys who gave up uh, everything, gave up their money, I mean, their, their pension, gave up homes, gave, gave up property. We, we can argue about strategy, whether that was the right strategy or not. But to call guys like that cowarded, cowards, I mean, that's, that's just, that, that, that's not what they were doing. They, they, were, they were not trying to run away from a fight. They fought. Often what was happening, and this is the case in my situation, and I think it's probably the case in a lot of people's situation, is if you're in a liberal diocese and there's no 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 chance of, it can, of the diocese turning over to be conservative, then what happens when you get run over by a bus or you die or you, you have to you move on? Well, what happens is your congregation is subverted by your bishop. Your congregation figure, uh, your your bishop figures figures out a way to get a guy in there who's going to be uh, a little more liberal than you were, and then yeah, not know, radically, not radically you know, more liberal, just slightly. Slightly, yeah, and then they yeah. got the long and, game. And, 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 right, it's a process, and then ultimately, the, the your your sheep, the the people, the flock over which God has appointed you, are subverted. So in that situation, the only choice you have to be faithful to the people that God set you over is to get them out of that toxic, poisonous place into safe pastures. Yeah. And I know that's 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 what that's what the vast majority of the people who left the Episcopal Church are trying to do. That's right, and and then and they suffered for it. So, I mean, I, I like I like Redeem Zoomer. I think he's got a lot of uh, energy, and I think he I think he's a courageous guy. But I think he needs to I think he needs to rethink how he is characterizing those who are older than him, and who have been through a lot more experience in the church than he has. Yeah, I mean, I you know I agree with him that I was a coward. I just think that the cowardice manifested in how long I stayed in the Episcopal Church. That's how I think. I think that I was. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm, we we fought. I mean, Nick and I were 
arm in arm. But, you know, I think that my reticence to leave had almost everything to do at one point, at least before we began to turn with all of the things that he's saying we need to retake that we were going to lose, you know, cultural cachet, good pension, you know, getting to introduce myself as the, you know, uh, director of this big Episcopal church, all these things I, I really held on tightly to. And in my not shame, but in my repentance, I had to have those, um, had to have all of that uh, taken away. And so I, you know, I mean, I don't disagree with him that there's a lot of mixed motivations in all of this, but I do, I do think that's a good point, Matt. That he, um, you know, I, I hope. I don't know if he listen, will listen. Who's one of the listeners? But you know, that there, um, there are men, you know, who even gone to glory, uh, certainly who who gave up a lot because they really considered this. You know, what good is the world if you forfeit your soul? And I think um, those are the people that I look up to and am walking behind now with great gratitude and great joy. Amen. If anybody knows of an old pizza hut for sale in Louisville, call me. I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. That's going to be all the time we have. If you want to keep the conversation going, be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirmandfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon. And Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 